Let's turn again together to the book of Hebrews. Here's a sermon from a very concerned pastor uh, to his flock. Uh, We don't really just are our best guess on who this pastor is writing uh, to the Hebrews, even who this uh, exact audience is, but the nature of the sermon, we're confident that this is a Jewish uh, Christian audience um, coming from a Jewish background. They have a working knowledge of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system um, under the Old Covenant. And so the author can, well, he can refer to the Scriptures. He can refer back to the Old Testament in um, supporting his message to them. We see more of that in Hebrews than we do anywhere else uh, in the Scriptures or in the New Testament at least. Um, And for hope in the midst of trials, um, for something to to stand on, for, for peace and security, confidence in the face of opposition from day to day, there's no going back to the old way the old pattern of worship and the barriers to, to worship that were there um, in, in communion to God. It just doesn't have the power uh, to save them. Why would they want to go back and abandon the only hope of this uh, eternal redemption? Uh, so they must look to Christ um, and not just a quick glance, but to fix their gaze upon Christ in faith. He is unchanging. He is the high priest of a better covenant. Um, And so the goal here isn't just to convince them of these words through a lot of sound argumentation and reference to the scriptures. The goal here is is that they would grow in gratitude for what the Lord Jesus has done. That they would grow in their affection for Jesus to reinforce their faith. Uh, That's the goal for us as well as we come to to God's word. So we're going to pick up in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9. Preacher writes, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has prepared once appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. This is God's living and enduring Word to His people. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we pray that You would show us wonderful things from Your law. And this Word that You have so graciously given to us would accomplish its purpose in our hearts and our lives. And we confess we need the illumination of Your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come now and show us uh, wonderful things from Your Word. Lord, we thank You in Your sovereign kindness. You have given us a Word that we can hear, that we can understand. Uh, Help us now to be attentive. May Your Word be proclaimed faithfully. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a lone whiskey bottle afloat in the Pacific Ocean. Actually, it didn't start in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, this whiskey bottle started at uh, the River Thames uh, in uh, London in 1937. And this whiskey bottle slowly made its way eastward past the uh, Scandinavian Peninsula, uh, out into the North Sea, into the Barents Sea. You may have to look at a map to figure out where those places are. Uh, it moved around the continent of Asia and, and found its way through the, the Bering Strait and into the North Pacific and finally ended up on a beach outside of San Francisco, California. Um, Twelve years it made this journey from the Thames uh, to San Francisco and it was uh, intact when it arrived and on a morning in 1949, uh, a man named Jack was walking along the beach and he found this bottle and he noticed there was something inside. And so he uh, found a rock, smashed the bottle and there was a slip of paper on the inside and it just had this little note. To avoid all confusion, I leave my entire estate to the lucky person who finds this bottle. And it was signed by a gal named Daisy Alexander who died that 12 years ago, 1937, uh, who was the heiress to the Singer Sewing Company. Um, And so uh, Jack, who happened to be down and out at the time without work, feeling pretty miserable, he took this note to the court and, and sure enough, it held up in court And he uh, learned that he was the recipient of a $6 million inheritance. Um, Now, can you imagine his response? Um, I mean, reading that note, learning that he was now that recipient. I mean, one response would be, no way, this is too good to be true, this would not be happening. Um, Or another response would be absolute gratitude um, at finding such... Uh, such a note and such a generous inheritance. Um, This is something that changed his life forever. He went from being jobless in a place of of depression um, to now the recipient of so much wealth. Um, I think any any one of us would probably be grateful uh, for that type of inheritance. Uh, Maybe more grateful than we've ever been for anything else. Uh, If we received 
uh, note like that and, and were recipients of that. But the truth is, the preacher sets out here in verse 15 that all those who are called of God have an inheritance. It's not $6 million. It's worth far more than that. A far greater inheritance, an eternal inheritance. It doesn't just pass away. It can't be spent. No amount of money could ever come close to the value of this inheritance. An inheritance, typically, after, after the death Someone who leaves behind this inheritance. And he says in verse 15, that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them. So why is this death mentioned in verse 15 so significant? What is it about this death that distributes such a great inheritance? And so the author, he wants the church to see it's not sacrifice, it's not... uh, Ritual that saves, it's a better way and a better sacrifice. The Son of God and His redeeming sacrifice for sins that saves, that provides such a rich and lasting inheritance. This sacrifice actually has the power to give them the strength and hope and the peace that they long for. Something they would certainly need in times of of doubt, confusion, Um, So verse 15 is really the summary that the rest of this chapter fleshes out uh, and explains. He reiterates the inadequacy of this old covenant way and the need for forgiveness that it points to. And then he shows the the provision for forgiveness and the shedding of blood and ends with the reality of forgiveness. So those are the three hooks we're going to hang on uh, this morning. The need for forgiveness, provision for forgiveness, and the reality of forgiveness. Verses 16 through 18 remind us of how a covenant was set up and ratified under the old way. Uh, Something that this um, audience would have been been familiar with. What would happen if this covenant was broken? Uh, The language here for covenant and will uh, is used somewhat interchangeably in our translations. Uh, We read the translation will uh, in verses 16 and 17. It really seems to It fits well with the inheritance idea verse 15 speaks of. But he's really talking about the old covenant. The old way compared to the new. A death had to happen for God's people to receive this inheritance. And a death had to happen because of how a covenant was ratified. You can see why these may be interchangeable. God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, really uh, chapters 15 through 17, describes this uh, for the people. Uh, The Lord promised Abraham and his uh, offspring that his offspring would be like the stars in the heavens. Uh, And through his offspring, um, the nations would be blessed. And even though his offspring would be afflicted uh, for hundreds of years, the Lord would bring them back to a land of promise. And now this, this promise, this covenant, was, was not entirely unconditional. Abraham needed to believe what God said to him. He would need to uh, later circumcise the infant males as a sign of this covenant. In Genesis 15, it says that Abraham did, in fact, believe. It was counted to him as righteousness. But then two verses later, he asks the question, well, how do I know? How do I know this will happen? And so the Lord cuts a covenant 
with Abraham. Literally, has Abraham cut three animals in half? So Abraham had to believe, but God is the only one who ratifies this covenant. You see, normally both parties would have to walk through the pieces of this animal, communicating, let this be done to me. Let me be torn in two if I break the conditions of this promise, this covenant. And so at nightfall, we see the, you know, it describes the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot passing through these pieces. Not Abraham. So God himself would die if the promises of this covenant were not fulfilled. And then we see that the covenant stipulations are given through the law of Moses. There was going to be, uh, I mean, there was going to be blessings and curses that would flow from this covenant, but God's own curse would fall upon himself. If there was going to be any atonement, any forgiveness of his unfaithful covenant partner, God would have to die. So salvation would be by his grace alone. It had to be. It could only be by his mercy. So the old covenant has been broken. The need for forgiveness is there. Do you remember how often God's chosen people in covenant with him promised to obey? Promised to follow the instructions that he'd given? Exodus 19 is an example. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. We promise. We'll do it. And later in Exodus 24, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they didn't. They didn't obey. Didn't take them long in the wilderness to, to complain, slap the hand of God's love away from them. It doesn't take us long to do this in our sin. We may not make it out of the sanctuary this morning without turning on the love of God in our own hearts, the attitude of our hearts, the desires, maybe for the rest of the day. Then we read in Joshua chapter 1, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Now they're trying to encourage Joshua in this. But if he was less than convinced, we would understand. God's people have broken covenant. They need forgiveness, atonement for sin. This can only happen through that death we read, of, read in verse 15 that redeems them. Um, and it's his death, the Lord, death of the Lord Jesus, our high priest, he identifies with you, he identifies with me, with all those who have broken covenant. He took that curse upon himself. He had to die so that we could be forgiven by his mercy, by his covenant faithfulness, not the faithfulness of God's people. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul tells us what had to be done when this old covenant was violated and a new covenant ratified or inaugurated. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Receive what is promised. That, that sounds a little bit like inheritance. There's inheritance language here. What Paul says here and then again in Ephesians 1, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so it's through the ministry of our high priest that this inheritance can be distributed. The benefits of the new covenant can be enjoyed in part by the body of Christ now and fully at His return. So He's given us the guarantee of this inheritance, the down payment of our renewed communion with Him by the Holy Spirit. So we're united to Jesus. We enjoy communion with the triune God by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 73, we hear these words of assurance and hope. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's just repeat that together to let that sink in. Say it with me if you know it. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's the inheritance. That is what we long for. That's what we, that's what we gain through Christ's death. More of our God. Sweet communion with Him. Now if we get excited about the potential of six million as an inheritance just from a broken whiskey bottle. And the, Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes reminds us how quickly that goes. What should our response be to this type of inheritance? Does our gratitude match what we have been given in the Lord Jesus? I know mine doesn't most of the time. I need to repent of that. Repent of how ungrateful I am for the riches of my inheritance in Christ. Gratitude on the part of God's people. Church family, this is something we need to work in. We need to to work into our hearts and minds the riches we've been given and the need we have for atonement, forgiveness. We cannot cover the debt of our sin. As much as we may try, we try to minimize our sin by, by looking away from the holiness of God and, and looking at the less than holy standards of ourselves, our neighbors, our friends, co-workers. Um, you know, we're not so bad. We don't, we don't need forgiveness like that person does. And that's especially familiar if we understand the attitude of the Pharisees in the New Testament Lord, I thank you that I'm not like, oh, like that tax collector, that sinner. And yet the Lord Jesus came, preached, died, healed, so that lost sheep could respond like that tax collector in Luke 18, who cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, the gospel is only good news to those who see their need for forgiveness. The majority of people you meet will not turn to Christ because they are blind and deaf to their need. So here's how I want to encourage you. Show them your need. Show them your need. Pray as the tax collector before them. Confess your need before them that they might see their own need. By the grace and kindness of God, turn to Him. 
repentance and faith. There's only one sacrifice that can remove the stains of our sin. In verses 19 through 22, we see the provision for forgiveness. And that provision, it's found in one word. You know it. Blood. Blood is the provision. And the author recalls Exodus 24 here where Moses sprinkled blood on the altar and then on the people. So for this covenant to be established, there must be blood. And this, in this sense, it's not you know, the sign of life in this particular case, but the death of the animal. Without this provision, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no restored communion between the sovereign God in covenant with His vassals, with His image bearers. So where does this provision come from? Why, why is it that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins? And the answer takes us back to Genesis. Genesis 2 and 3 where God makes a, a covenant of life with His image bearers. Sometimes you hear this called the covenant of works in the theological framework of the church. Now Adam didn't have to earn his life. He didn't have to merit or work for the blessings of God in the garden, sweet communion with God, the blessings of life were, were given to him in the garden. They were already his by the grace of the Creator, but they could be lost. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there would be death. The shedding of blood as the wages for sin. And the very next chapter, after Adam and Eve have run away in their guilt, Guilt of their sin, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The shedding of blood, not their blood, but the blood of an animal as a substitute to cover their shame. So God makes provision for forgiveness through a, a suitable sacrifice. One commentator he says of this ceremony between Moses and the people, By sprinkling the blood of an animal on the people, Moses is saying that God would accept that substitution as a temporary reprieve until the true substitute should come. We need this provision. We need the blood of a substitute. Um, maybe you know the story of a young boy and his sister who had a rare a disease that required a transfusion. And not just any transfusion, but a transfusion from another who had shared and recovered from uh, this particular illness and it so happened that this little girl's brother um, had this illness and had recovered uh, from it just a few years earlier and so the doctor asked him would you give your blood to your sister and he paused wrinkled his forehead a little bit but then smiled and said yes I would for my sister and so this little boy who was healthy and strong was wheeled into the room with his sister who was um, weak, frail, and pale. And they started to, um, to draw the blood. And near, near the end of the procedure, um, a little boy put a tremble in his lip. He looked up and he said, Doctor, when do I die? When do I die? And it was then that the doctor realized that he thought giving his blood meant giving his life for his sister. You know, we all share a disease. 
It's a disease common to humanity and yet far more serious than this little girl faced. We share the disease of sin that requires blood and not just a transfusion, but the very life of the one who gives it. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the New Testament, Jesus makes this connection for his disciples. The connection between his own blood and the blood Moses sprinkled on the people. We're going to hear these words in just a few minutes as we go to the table. Except I'm not going to be sprinkling blood all over you. Instead, you're going to hear, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Blood is that necessary provision for forgiveness. And it's been shed by our true substitute. We get to verses 23 and 26. Uh, 23 through 26. It takes us back to the Day of Atonement that we read about in Leviticus 16. Uh, Got this blood of uh, atonement. It's not made in earthly tabernacle or temple. It's made in the heavenly tent, the temporary for the permanent, the copy for the true things in heaven itself. And here's why the ascension of the Lord Jesus is so, so important to our eternal redemption. He lives and sits at the Father's right hand in power and authority, having finished the atonement for sins. Now there's no more sacrifice, no more blood that must be shed. Let's keep in mind, Jesus is not resting the right hand of the Father. He's not just sitting back, sort of looking at his watch, saying, well, you know, I guess maybe now's the time to, enough is enough, I'm going to return. No, he's actively interceding. It's important for us. We have doubts, discouragements, fears. Our mediator sits in the presence of the Father on our behalf. Who is to condemn, the apostle says. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The real and better sacrifice has been made, sprinkling the heavenly things themselves. And now what does that mean? There's some kind of interesting language there. Uh, There are a few different interpretations here. Some think that this is actually the inward work of the Spirit in the heart of a believer. Because it is is God's people that will endure for eternity, right? And so uh, it's plausible that this could be that imagery. Um, But I don't think it it necessarily fits here the, the atonement language and what is being compared between a temporary, earthly atonement and a permanent atonement in heaven. There's nothing in heaven that needs to be cleansed. We're the ones who need the blood. We need the cleansing. But if we're going to enjoy, again, think of all those things that were cleansed temporarily on earth. If we're going to enjoy, think of the, uh, the, the altar of incense. Right? Now the prayers of God's people or the table with the bread representing his provision and fellowship with them or the, the lampstand in the tabernacle. God's presence and illumination, if we're going to enjoy those things in communion with God, they need to be cleansed. Um, So this has been purified with the blood of Christ, the reality in heavenly places. Um, So this means that there is real forgiveness. Um, How are people really forgiven under the old covenant in the old way? Through the blood of Jesus. We go back to verse 15. 
It's the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus works backwards and forwards as a retroactive for sins that were committed even before the incarnation. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. And what Jesus has done, brothers, this is, this is an unrepeatable thing. And a passage like this will really speak into um, the practices, the kind of undermining uh, the Catholic practice of the Eucharist that claims that Christ's body is being broken over and over again, His uh, blood being shed over and over again at this ceremony. Um, that generates all kinds of questions about where Jesus is as the God-man and the resurrected Lord Jesus, where He is right now. When we eat at this table, we will eat with our Savior who is very present with us and we will eat of Him through the symbols that He provides. There's a a sacramental spiritual union between the elements and what it is they represent. We will not be eating the physical body or drinking the actual blood of Jesus. But spiritually, we will be filled up Again, what we could never provide for ourselves, what no amount of, of food sacrifices could provide. Jesus provides. Jesus satisfies. So we need Him. We want more of Him as we feast together. Um, the thing I want us to remember as we look at the reality of forgiveness in Jesus, uh, it is not our faith in Jesus that saves us. Your faith does not save you. Jesus saves you understand that? You're not saved by your faith. You're forgiven and saved by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. My faith is not a once for all thing. Your faith is not a once for all thing. It's just not that dependable and reliable. It's not that permanent. Our faith ebbs and flows. And there, there are many who are going to spend their entire lives looking for that once for all faith. Maybe they'll have multiple conversion experiences or maybe they've been baptized multiple times hoping that something will just stick and it'll be it. Something they can be confident of. But the problem is, is they keep on sinning. And we keep on sinning. We undermine our faith. So our faith is is God's grace to us. We receive Christ. We're united to Jesus by faith. But our salvation does not rest on that faith. Thanks be to God for that. It's Christ, once for all sacrifice, that saves. And the finality of of Jesus' sacrifice, it's brought out here in these last couple of verses. The hope of all those who are waiting uh, for our high priest. Um, We can still see that heavenly reality over the temporary day of atonement here. Think how excited the people would be. They're standing outside the tabernacle or the temple and the high priest goes into that most holy place. Is he going to come back out? Will he survive? Will the sacrifice be accepted? What excitement and celebration when he did actually appear again. There's relief. There's joy. They can now celebrate their sacrifice had been received. And when Jesus returns, brothers and sisters, it's time to celebrate. It's confirmation that his sacrifice has been accepted. And all the, the blessings of salvation, that internal inheritance, 
we've been reminded of. That is secure. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're fueling up for every time we gather here in worship. There are always questions about what happens after, after someone dies. Maybe you're asking that question you have in the past. That's okay. It's a good question to ask. Um, humans will be asking that question until the Lord Jesus appears a second time. What happens when we die? Do we turn into, into ghosts? Are we, so, are we uh, reincarnated into another creature? Do we just you know, vanish into some sort of subconscious nothingness? Verse 27 makes it clear that we will all die once. And after that, we will consciously face the judgment of God. So there's no redos here. No repeats. You have one life to live before you are thrust into eternity. John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, the Jews who are around him. And they, they refuse to, to listen to him, believe that he was the Son of God, that he was the light of the world. So Jesus says this to them, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for your family members and friends. And maybe that word, maybe, maybe this word is an encouragement to share what you've always wanted to share. The hope that you have in the shed blood of Jesus, the true substitute that you need. Now if you trust in Christ and you, you recognize your need of forgiveness, you surrendered your life to Him, then there is no fear of judgment. The once for all sacrifice has been made. The nail pierced hands and side and feet still testify to your forgiveness. I mean, it only gets better from here at death. It only becomes more real at death for those who look to Christ. But if you've not believed in this good news, then there is nothing that you could ever do. Not all of your best days combined could appease the wrath of God for sin. So this warning is clear. We need to hear that. You turn your back on Jesus, you turn your back on the one place and, and the one person where forgiveness can be found. Pastor Augustus Strong, he once said, God requires satisfaction because he is holy, but he makes satisfaction because he is love. Let me say that again. He requires satisfaction because he's holy. He makes satisfaction because he is love. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. Occasionally I'll sign a letter to my wife and I'll make a little T, put a line at the bottom that makes an L and then two diagonal lines that form the A and so that stands for true love always. And it's a reminder to her of my love for her, my desire to be faithful. But coming from me, that can't always be true because there was a time when our love wasn't time when it began um, sometimes that love is stronger than at other times but for Jesus this is ever and always true he says I've shed my blood for you I love you I will always love you and he can say that where that that love never had a beginning it'll never have an end that's um, what he says to all those Look to Him, who live to Him by faith. And now there's, there's fuel for our faith as we come to the Lord's table. Would you pray with me?